pastor. I appreciate you again, as we mentioned in Sunday school, your faithfulness uh, while your pastor is gone. And appreciate the folks that are visiting here today. I got to meet some here just before the, the morning message, morning service, and trust it will be a blessing to you in our time together. Now, in Sunday school, we kind of set the stage for what the message is going to be here, and I'm not going to go over that entire Sunday school lesson again, but I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to, first of all, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Without going into a lot of detail as far as the Sunday school lesson is concerned, let me just kind of give you the high point of what I was trying to accomplish in Sunday school. Several years ago, I realized that every lexicon, every concordance, when they list the Bible verses, always do it in the traditional order that we have in our Old and New Testaments. There's nothing wrong with that, although I think it's very interesting if we could somehow rearrange and someday maybe somebody will write a concordance or a lexicon where they'll put the books of the New Testament, especially, in the order in which they were received. Because you really cannot do a legitimate word study unless you put them in chronological order. We use the example of gig. That depending upon where you are and when you live, that word gig can mean a lot of different things. If you're into frog gigging, then you have one idea when I use that word. If you want to impress me with your cell phone having 256 gig, then you're impressing me with the size of the storage that you have. Or when I went to the, the bank on April 15th with some checks from my tax clients and they were asking me if I was a CPA, the other teller said, no, that's his side gig. Uh, so we use the word a lot of different ways. Well, it's good to put those words in order. The same thing with our New Testament books. If we will put those New Testament books in order, we find a theme coming back over and over and over again. Just again as a kind of refresher, let me read to you from one verse from each of the first five New Testament books we believe that were given by God to human authors, human writers. And see if you can pick up the theme of the, today's message. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Galatians 5, 5. But we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness of faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Titus 2.13 Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you still haven't caught that theme, let me give you another word study again from the very first five New Testament books given to us by God at the beginning of the 50s, even before the Gospels are written, even before the book of Romans is written, even before the Gospel of John is written, even before the book of Revelation is written, 
we read these words. 1 Corinthians 1.7 So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.5 For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. James 5, verse 7 Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rains. Did you get the point? When God, after 400 plus silent years, decides to break the silence and to give to men the beginnings of the New Testament, the theme is overwhelmingly hope and waiting for the Lord. It wasn't the Gospels, although they certainly were orally given, constantly being preached out the known world. It wasn't the Revelation. It wasn't a lot of the books we would think surely would be first. When the Lord decides to come and inspire those books to be written, He starts with a message of hope and a message of looking for the Lord to return. That's why I'm pre-tribulation rapture. Because the Lord wants. He didn't even mention the tribulation for about 40 years after He gives the account of the rapture. There is hope. There is blessing. There is encouragement on every page of those books as they're given to us. The church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, the church to the Galatians, the epistle to James, and so on. Each of these remind us that God gives to each of us the wonderful fact of hope. In preparing this message, I came across just a few quotes I found pretty interesting. For you that are fishermen, the charm of fishing is that it is the pursuit of what is elusive but attainable, a perpetual series of occasions for hope. Now, I'm not much a fisherman, but I suppose if you are, that's kind of the reason you do it. There is a hope, the possibility that you'll have a better day today than you did a week ago or a month ago or whenever it was the last time you went fishing. Hope is something that each believer must enjoy. The scriptures are filled with verses like I gave to you, but I find it instructive that when the Lord begins the New Testament writings, He starts with a theme of waiting for the Lord, and he starts with the theme of hope. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. 
Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Holy Father, I don't know the heart, the challenges that each individual here might be facing today, but I know if we ever lose the hope that only you can give, we are well nigh dead. Lord, if you saw fit in your wisdom to early in the giving in the New Testament, you decided to give messages of hope, then Lord, may we do the same to those with whom we rub shoulders on a daily basis. Guide and direct each part of this message. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You take away hope, and there's not much left. Hope moves us forward. Hope helps us to see the future. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the fantastic chapter on the resurrection, again, one of the first epistles ever written, he gives us that great classic passage on the resurrection. If we have only hope in this life, can you finish the verse? We are of all men most miserable. If all we have is some kind of hope for things to get better in this life, if that's all we have, then we would be of all men most miserable. There must be a hope of a future day, a brighter day, that things can change. A Puritan writer who died in 1635 by the name of Richard Sibbs wrote a 175-page book on one verse. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why am I cast down, O my soul? I just quieted within me. Hope thou God. The answer to your problems, my friends, the answers to the challenge of this church, that we would continue to live lives of hope. There is a better day. There is the blessing that God puts upon us here in this life, but then beyond that, there are the blessings that God has reserved for us in all eternity in heaven. Hope helps lighten our darkness. Hope is a guarantee that because God has been faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the future. Why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. As parents, our primary obligation is to give to our children a hope in our God. Psalm 78, we're told this, that they might set their children's hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Psalm 78, verse 7. My responsibility as a parent, my responsibility as a preacher, my responsibility as a friend is to be an encouragement to you. I think of Barnabas. His name even means son of encouragement. He's kind of one of those men that's behind the scenes. He's not one that probably wrote any New Testament book. There are some that suggest he wrote Hebrews, but probably did not write anything of import. But here's a man who faithfully served the Lord. He encouraged God's people through his finances. 
when he gave to the church what God had blessed him with. He blessed his people through fellowship. He was the one that saw something in the Apostle Paul when no one gave him a chance. And he was encouragement. He said, this man, there is hope for a man like this. There is hope for a man that can turn his back on the sins of his past and the lifestyle he has lived and the persecution of Christians. There is hope for this man. And Barnabas provided a wonderful feeling of hope and encouragement to those like the Apostle Paul. Then we see good old Jack. We don't know why he quit. We can come up with a variety of reasons, but for one reason or another, John Mark was a terrible failure until Barnabas encouraged him and gave him a second chance. And he goes with Barnabas on that second missionary journey, and we know the story. According to Acts 16, Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. But here's a man who gives hope to each and every person he meets. I want to meet him someday in heaven. I know, again, we'd like to think, oh, I want to see Paul, or I want to see David, or I want to see Abraham. Well, I want to see Barnabas. Because I think that's something, the character of Barnabas is something that all of us can do. To be called alongside, to be encouragement, whether it's finances or fellowship, or someone who is encouraging that person who's a failure. If I could somehow give them hope, then I believe that God can use me like he's never used me before. Hope is infectious. It's contagious. Just like on the one discouragement is contagious, so is encouragement. Giving people hope is unbelievably encouraging. Discouragers are a dime a dozen. In Deuteronomy 1, we find out that there was a group of the Jewish people who discouraged the hearts of the brethren and would not vote or encourage them to go into the promised land when the decision was made at Kadesh Barnea. Our brethren have discouraged our heart. And yet we find other verses like in Isaiah where the goldsmith encourages the blacksmith and the blacksmith encourages somebody else and we find out that it is encouraging. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why? You need to be ready, stand willing and able to share your hope with those who desperately need to hear. The thing about hope is that it is infectious. As discouragement is infectious, so encouragement. My wife and I were having this discussion about a lady in our church seems to be down on everything. Whatever the church tries to do, she's against it. And I'm sure there's no one like that in this church, and I'm not speaking to anybody I don't know you. My wife and I are having this discussion, not you, and it's about our church, not yours. But there's this one lady, I mean, she'll show up at the dinner, and everything tastes lousy to her. And she doesn't mind telling you. She'll find out, first of all, what each lady brought, and then she'll badmouth each of them to their face about what they made. Uh, it boggles my mind. And so as my wife and I are talking, we're saying, I wonder what it will be like when she first enters heaven's glory. She's going to be speechless. 
What will she say? She is so geared that direction. She is so geared to the direction of just being so down and discouraging on everything that people try to do. She's going to be absolutely speechless. She'll have nothing to say, I wouldn't think, unless she starts complaining about heaven, but I, I don't think you're allowed to do that. But by the same token, if we're willing to encourage, to come alongside, to be a blessing, we all need it. I need for my wife to be my cheerleader. How about you, man? Does that work for you as well? I, I desperately need my wife to be my cheerleader. I mean, it's great that people say, well, I appreciate the message or it touched my heart or something, but more than anything else, I want to hear from my wife. And when my girls are home, I want to hear from them. Now, of course, their attitude about preaching was to try to repeat the corny stories I told. And that's the only thing they ever remembered. Or they would sit in the congregation if my voice got a little bit too loud and they do like this while I'm preaching. I don't think that really encouraged me, but they were young, so I excused them. But there's something about the person like Barnabas who comes alongside and gives hope, encouragement, a word saying you can do it. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing for the Lord. I pray for you. I pray that God would use you exceedingly abundantly all that you could ever ask or think. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, a leader is a dealer in hope. Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. Even Anne Frank, during the Holocaust, World War II, wrote this in her diary. I simply can't build my hopes on a foundation of confusion, misery, and death. I think peace and tranquility will return again. Now, as a Jewish young lady, we don't know if she ever came to know Christ as Savior, but she said the world has to be better. It has to somehow be better than what I am having to live through. And there is a hope of a better day for each and every one of us. So don't be the guy and don't be the lady who just simply downs everything that's going on. We desperately need encouragement. Hope is healing. It's contagious. It's a blessing. It energizes. It moves us forward. It lightens our darkness. Our faith in the past gives us hope for the future. It is healing. According to Norman Cousins, the human body experiences a powerful gravitational pull in the direction of hope. That is why the patient's hopes are the physician's secret weapon. They are the hidden ingredients in any prescription. Bernie Siegel said this, I see people who die a few minutes after a doctor tells them there is no hope of a cure. They give up and go. Others get angry and find joy in providing the doctor wrong. Something within them is challenged and hopeful. Hope is the divine motivator. There is no medicine like hope. No invention so great, no tonic so powerful as expectation of something tomorrow. Besides one of my side gigs, like the bank teller being taxes and helping ministries and individuals with their taxes, another one of my side gigs 
is to help students that are struggling with standardized tests. For three months, I met with Alexis Miller in her home in Pace, Florida, about 15 minutes from my home. Alexis Miller, it was discovered, had a pineal tumor in her brain. It's about as deep down in the brain as you can get. It would take major surgery. She was put on a waiting list. And on the 24th of April, she finally had her surgery. Her mom wanted to keep things as normal as possible. I mean, here she is, an 18-year-old young lady, getting ready to graduate, sending out graduation announcements, and yet also realizing within just a few weeks before graduation, she's going to be in Houston, Texas for brain surgery. Leading up to that, the last month or so, she slept all day. I arrived at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesdays. Alexis would sleep until about 10 minutes before I got there. She would get up. For one hour, we would prepare for the ACT. When I left at 3 o'clock, she would go back to bed and sleep the rest of the day. And she'd do that every day until I came back the following Tuesday, and we'd do it all over again. She's in Houston right now. She's recovering from brain surgery, but things are not going well. I notified a pastor friend of mine in Houston, Texas, Michael Taylor, and asked him if he could go by, and he's been by several times. His most recent text came to me yesterday, and it basically said this, Alexis is not doing well. She's throwing up in tremendous pain. They're going to have to put a shunt in, but they can't even do that because she is so filled with infection. I lost one student five years ago. I don't want to lose another. But I'm praying every day of my life for her, and I've got people all over this world praying for Alexis. And I'd ask you, when you think of Alexis, to do the same. According to Pastor Taylor, Alexis is pretty well given up. She figures even at the age of 18, it's just not worth the fight. She needs some hope. She needs some confidence. She is a believer. She accepted Christ as Savior as a child. But after going through these last two weeks, she really doesn't think there's much reason to go on. And I suppose, if anything, my message today is kind of dedicated to her. She needs hope. She needs encouragement. She know, needs to know that people all over this world are praying for the miracle that needs to be done in her life. 18 years of age, her whole life ahead of her. And yet she's at a crossroads. And I believe the difference is in one word, hope. It can make all the difference. Hope is healing. Hope purifies. Beloved, now were we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I've often wondered why it is that the Lord seems fed in his wisdom to multiply the sorrows the trials, the challenges on believers. And I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 1 gives us the explanation. God is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all 
of our tribulation so that we in turn can cover somebody else in one of those tribulations. If I only went through one challenge in my life and only one at a time, what difference does it make if everybody goes through the same thing? But if God places in the lives of believers a multiplicity of trials and challenges, then we can go to those ungodly, unsaved in the world and say, I have the answer to what you're going through. I've been there. And I can give you hope. And I can give you encouragement that a better day is coming. When the storms of life are raging, it is hope and a better day that makes all the difference. A hope of a better day that only Christ can give that only can come from him is our blessed hope. I understand that you had the opportunity to go through the catacombs in Rome. You would, those are the caves and the tunnels that persecuted Christians would hide in during the Roman persecution. There are 66 drawings, I understand. I didn't count them. But there are 66 drawings that have a picture of an anchor because that was their hope. Their anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6, 19, hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I guess when you get to be as old as I am, you see a lot of people have already gone to be with the Lord. I guess I expect of those that are older than you it's a little bit disconcerting when those that go to be with the Lord are younger than you. And of course, I realize the older you get, that's going to happen. I mean, I, I don't want to be silly here, but I remember the day when I, for the first time in my life, had to sit under the preaching of a pastor who was actually younger than I. So that can't be right. I mean, we're supposed to, you know, respect the hoary head, the gray hair, supposed to look up. We always need preachers that are older than we are. Well, my wife reminded me that it sure beat the alternative. That is my dying young. I said, well, I guess you got a point there. That if God gives me a long life, there will be a day that I'm going to have to have a preacher that's younger than I am. But as my wife and I, these past two, three months have gone to a variety of funerals. Almost in every case, there are people that are younger than we are. And each of them had hope of a better day. My brother, 43 years of age, when he went to be with the Lord. A lady that was the principal of first grade at Pensacola Christian Academy, the pastor's wife, for several years. Dennis McBride and Connie McBride. Connie McBride in January went to be with the Lord. The reason my wife took over as the first grade principal at the academy was because she was taking over because of Mrs. McBride's illness. In fact, I suppose that was the reason why well, my wife said, you know, 
I think it's time for me to retire. And so in just a few more weeks, my wife will retire after 44 years to go to Christian Academy. She realizes by the reminder of Mrs. McBride that our lives are short. No one, not one of us has any guarantee of tomorrow. We like to do a few things. We'd like to see our kids are scattered all over the world now. Leah in Guam teaching at Harvest Ministries. Rachel, a preacher's wife in Chicago, Illinois. Lydia, a preacher's wife in Owensboro, Kentucky. I praise the Lord that all three of our girls are in full-time ministry. But we like to spend some time with them. And my wife and he want to spend some time with her kids. And we realize life is short. Two weeks ago, we went to the funeral of Alan Lawrence. You probably never heard the name, maybe you never met Alan Lawrence, but he was in the same class as Rachel, our oldest daughter. Because of a genetic defect, Alan Lawrence spent most of his life in a wheelchair. His brother had the same genetic illness, and he died in his 20s, I believe, Frankie. And so Mrs. Lawrence, for over 55 years, got up every night, turned her son over so he wouldn't get bed sores and change his position and go back to bed. Did that for 55 years without a break. Alan was pretty special. In spite of his infirmities and disability, he wrote devotional books, and you can go to Amazon and plug in Alan Lawrence, and you'll find some of the devotional books that he wrote from his wheelchair towards the end of his life, simply using that tube with his computer to do his writing. But in all my life, and what was said several times at his funeral, I never saw him complain. For Alan Lawrence, there was always the hope of a better day. His sister, Rochelle, gave a little bit of a eulogy, and we all enjoyed it. She described how her younger brother, Alan, was always kidding her about being the older child in the family. And she had several children, and they were there all at the funeral, now grown up, but they came for Alan's funeral. And they said our oldest girl, when she was about two or three, loved to go out in the woods with Alan. Well, Alan was in his wheelchair towards the last 15 years or so of his life. It was all motorized, so he could pretty much get around on his own. He didn't have to be pushed around like he was in high school by one of the other students. And so in this motorized wheelchair, he goes out into the woods and enjoying the fellowship with this little three-year-old three girl, his niece, out there in the woods walking with Uncle Alan. Well, they got to a soft spot in the ground, evidently a little muddy area, and the, the wheelchair got stuck. Well, there's no way a little three-year-old girl is going to be able to push him out. He can't get out, even with the motor going full bore. He's not going anywhere. She can't push him out. And so he very clearly tries to make her understand, you're going to need now to go back to the house and get somebody big and strong and come out here to the woods and push me out. Do you understand? You go back to the house. Every parent can relate to this story. You go back to the house. You tell them to bring somebody out here who can push me out of the woods. 
I'm stuck here. I can't get out. She, she understands. She takes off, runs back several hundred yards back to the house, out of the woods. Just as she's going in the door, her dad sees her and says, Honey, how would you like to go to Burger King? What little three-year-old doesn't want to go to Burger King? Sure enough, she totally forgets the critical message she's required to deliver and spends the next hour at Burger King. And, well, they finally figure out what's happened to Uncle Alan out in the woods, and they finally get him out. But the last blog and the last devotional that Alan Lawrence ever wrote was his view of heaven. He said, when I get to heaven, don't look for me to walk through those pearly gates. I'm going to be doing cartwheels instead. They had this motorized wheelchair at the front at the funeral with a sign, no longer needed. Alan is with his Lord. He is in glory. But he lived his life every day, every week, every month. You can see it in his devotional. You can see it in his writings. He lived with the hope of a better day. When he could walk or run or do cartwheels. And that same hope that Alan has has been fulfilled, has been realized. And that hope is the same hope that you and I have as well. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. We're so thankful that when you decided what to write those early church members, as so many times we suffered persecution from the Jews, from the Gentiles, later on from the Roman Empire, that you gave them hope of a better day. You gave them the promise of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. You gave them the promise of a rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, may we not only appreciate the hope that we have in you, but that we would share that hope with others, that we, like Barnabas, would be an encouragement to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, with our heads bowed and our eyes.